As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask NT Write Anything podcast. Hello and welcome. I'm Justin Briley, Premier's Theology and Apologetics Editor, and the show brought to you as ever by Premier, SBCK, and NT Write Online, bringing you the thought and theology of New Testament scholar and former Bishop of Durham, Tom Wright. And today, a real treat for you. We're playing you part one of our live audience Ask N.T. Write Anything show that was recorded as part of Unbelievable the Conference 2021 just a few weeks ago. Over 2,000 people registered for this year's conference on how to tell the greatest story ever told and you can get all of the video sessions in high definition at our conference page. That's unbelievable.live. It was a real pleasure to conclude the conference with what you're hearing on today's show and it included a special guest too, secular historian Tom Holland contributing. Tom Holland's magisterial book Dominion has been making waves in secular and Christian circles with his argument that pretty much everything Western civilization values and takes for granted is a product of the Christian revolution. He gave an amazing talk at the conference titled Why I Changed My Mind About Christianity and Why It Matters. So do enjoy part one of this live Ask N.T. Write Anything show. And don't forget, you can find out more and sign up to ask a question yourself at the show page, askntwrite.com. And again, for all of the videos from this year's conference, check out unbelievable.live. We sit down on a regular basis, uh, Tom Wright, you and I, to answer all kinds of questions. Well, you do the answering. I I ask them of you. And um, they range from the pastoral to the cultural to the ethical to the biblical to the theological. Uh, And I'm always stunned by the way you manage to just (laughs) off the bat sort of respond to so many varied questions. We're fortunate today to have... Yeah, well, Holland joining us as well. Very much not a bishop. <laughs> he doesn't know what off the bat means. Well, well, well look, um, any that you feel you have something to say to, Tom Holland, <laughs> you, you dive in. And, and, and I, I'm looking at them now. There's quite a few that I think you, right. we will have something helpful to, to add. But um, we'll, we'll keep the focus on, on you, Tom Wright, to start us off at least on these questions as, as we go through them. And as I say, do keep them coming in. Um, this is a live edition of our Ask N.T. Write Anything podcast. If you haven't discovered it yet, go and look it up. Uh, we're available on all the major podcast platforms. And it's just a weekly dose of uh, several questions being asked of Tom and hearing his wisdom in response. Um, let's, um, let's start off with, let me see. Um, OK, here we go. Um, 
This is an interesting one. I, you may not have um, been able to hear this when we had the conversation with Josh McDowell and Sean McDowell, but Josh told an interesting story about how he had, someone had come to faith through him by him telling them about hell. That was the thing that he had sort of told. And he said, you know, and, and he, he's not saying that's the mode everyone, it happens for everyone, but, you know, sometimes people come in all kinds of unusual ways to faith. Um, and Richard asks, I noted Josh McDowell talking about apologetics in terms of heaven and hell, but uh, neither Tom Wright or Tom Holland have said much about that at all in the context of how the church can communicate the gospel in a pandemic-affected world. So how do you respond to that sort of approach of talking in terms of heaven and hell? I know this is something you've talked about a lot yourself, I, Tom. I didn't hear uh, the, the thing that Josh McDowell was doing, but of course that has been traditional in some parts, particularly of certain styles of American Christianity and uh, Protestantism, but also in many parts of traditional Catholicism. One thinks of that um, awesome scene in uh, Joyce's Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, where there's this great sermon fulminating about hell and all that will happen in it, etc., all, all that you'll lose and suffer, um, which drives the young hero to confession, and etc. Um, my problem with that is, is basically biblical, that in the Bible... Uh, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God arriving on earth as in heaven and that it's in the, particularly the medieval tradition but it comes ultimately from Plato that we've swapped that for this idea of leaving this earth and going either to heaven or to hell and that's become absolutely basic for a whole lot of Western Christianity and it isn't totally wrong in that of course in the New Testament God the creator loves his creation and can't stand the thought of people messing it up and destroying it and and defacing um, themselves and other human beings. And if God is a good God, he must hate apartheid. He must hate child abuse, etc., etc. And ultimately, if somebody says, I don't care whether there's a God or not, I'm just wanting to do A, B, and C, and I'm going to get on and do it, then sooner or later, God has to say no to that, or he is not the God of the Bible, the God of justice, the creator who longs to see his creation fulfilled. As long as we're talking about creation fulfilled or renewed or restored with judgment as the corollary of that, that's a very different picture from this idea of this world as simply a moral schoolroom where you're all taking an exam and a lot of you are going to fail it and then you're out on your ear and it'll be the worst for you, etc. That's not how the Bible puts it. Of course, Paul says God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world with true justice by a man whom he's appointed. He's saying that, by the way, to the people in the high court in Athens um, in Acts 17 who think that they are the senior court in the world and he's saying, no, actually, the God who is the creator is the senior court. So... I don't want to do, of course I don't want to do away with the idea of judgment, but to frame the whole evangelistic push in that way, it seems to me, is to build into the message from the beginning something which would then have to be deconstructed later on for a healthy Christianity to emerge. Mm, okay, thank you very much. Another question, this is more on the church itself. Um, Joshua asks, do you think that the modern church in some of its incarnations has become too emotionally based? And I think they're thinking of more sort of charismatic, Pentecostal sort of ways of, of doing church. The, the main focus being on worship and experiencing the spirit in that moment rather than evidence and theological based. And should we seek to change that? <laughs> of course, we're all different. 
And w many, many people now know much more about personality types than I did when I was growing up. You know, we've all, or lots of us have done Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram or those things. And we now recognize that some kinds of people naturally gravitate towards certain expressions of their faith, which leave others cold. And I think there is a little bit more mutual respect on that than there used to be. And people then used to confuse that with being theologically sound or unsound. Now, Jesus emphasized that we are supposed to love God with our heart and mind and soul and strength. And I've often, going around different churches, I've said to myself, these people have got um, the, the, the heart and the soul, but I'm not sure about the mind or the strength. And these people may have the mind and the strength, but it'd be nice if they had some heart and soul. And I know some churches that are trying to do all four, mm -hmm. that's comparatively rare. But it seems to me that's the aspiration. And it's one of the things about being in fellowship with other churches, which is what in my tradition an Anglican diocese would be, where you can actually learn from one another and exchange best practice and try out different styles, rather than feeling that the way this church has done it is the right way and we're not going to alter it mm. at all. I I mean, you, you describe being a bit uncomfortable in a very charismatic, expressive form. Appreciation. <laughs> is that just because you're terribly British, yeah, Tom Holland? So. And middle class. Um, and stiff, <laughs> but I, I happen to know, you know plenty of British people who were <laughs> uh, uh, born and raised in that tradition are very, very comfortable with it. But I, I almost wonder, though, even whether... I felt the power of it. Okay. I, mean, I completely felt the power of it. Okay. I, it, was, it was an amazing sight. And I kind of wished that I could join in, to be honest. I mean, it was kind of like, a, you know, a, a nightclub in which the Holy Spirit was, was, was ecstasy. But um, <laughs> did, is there not even in the tradition you do enjoy, the, the, the sort of a more Anglo-Catholic high church tradition, let's say, there's still something about the emotions that, of course, that's speaking to you? Without the emotion, there's yeah. nothing. Yeah. I mean, if it's all just arid... Sure. Yeah. And, but I think, scholarship. I mean, it's. But I think as well, we're teetering to and fro on basically an 18th and 19th century either or of romantic versus rational. Okay. And uh, some people just drift one direction, particularly people whose emotions maybe have been bruised for whatever reason of life experience or whatever, they find themselves more comfortable in a... I'm not saying that to you, but people... I do know people like that. And likewise, people whose emotions have been denied for a long time, you're not allowed to feel like that, you've got to keep a stiff upper lip, who then suddenly discover that it's OK to weep, to laugh, to, to shout in prayer. I, I remember um, in, in the reading for Dominion... Um, one of the passages that really, really struck me was uh, Origen, the great mm. third century um, theologian, um, brilliant scholar, absolutely you know, the, the, the greatest philosopher of his day, the man who perhaps more than anyone else created theology, the idea that um, philosophy can be squared with the, 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 the inheritance of Hebrew scripture, um, left this enormous corpus. But then he writes, every so often I, I am kind of struck dumb by the idea that the Lord who made the entire universe became a tiny baby and mm. cried for milk. Mm. And I am so overwhelmed by a sense of this that I know not what to say. And I am lost for words and I burst into tears. And you think of this kind of brilliant man basically coming up against why Christianity succeeded and why, you know, Platonism and, and, mm. uh, and, and all the Greek philosophical schools didn't was because ultimately philosophy is not enough mm. you need that you need that sense and that sense of the the you know the the, the baby jesus crying in the crib that's that, something that's that, 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 that anyone can get yeah. and, and that's yeah. the, the essence of, of nativity yeah. plays mm -hmm. and small children can yeah. have it yeah. and 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 that's 
that's that. I, you know, I read that and I thought, okay, so because obviously I've been wondering, you know, why was Christianity so mm. successful? Mm. That for me summed it up. Wow. Is I, that there's something there for philosophers and there's something there for primary school children. So, question for you then, Tom, Tom Holland, on this one then, because um, a lot of people have been asking in different ways. Where's Tom Holland at right now? What, that's that's, that's the, the, the question everyone's asking in one form or another. Um, and it's coming up in different ways. But I, rem- I seem to remember you telling me a story. In a sense, you've, you've told us already this, the intellectual story of your, your journey and, and how you've seen yourself, obviously, now as, as this child of the Christian revolution. But we all are at one level, whether we call ourselves Christian or not. What have been those emotional moments when something of that story is broken through in a new way? I think there was one moment, particularly while you were in the Middle East, when you were confronted with the realities of what was happening and, and, and somehow something broke through in a, in a new way. Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I went to um, Sinjar, which was a, a, a city, a town in northern Iraq that got captured in 2014 by the Islamic State. And there was a religious minority called the Yazidis who lived there who were condemned by um, Islamic State as devil worshippers, I mean, quite incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the women notoriously were, were enslaved, and girls as young as eight were enslaved. Um, and uh, some of the men were crucified. And I went to this town shortly after its liberation, and um, the uh, Islamic State fighters were kind of a mile or so across no-man's land, so within mortar range. Um, and... I, I, I felt a kind of overwhelming sense of what the Christian revolution had wrought mm. to be in the presence of people who would cheerfully have crucified me or done worse if they got hold of me, um, for whom the cross was what it had been for the Romans, an emblem of torture, uh, an expression of their power. And that really did kind of open up for me a, a kind of existential-style abyss as I suddenly realised just, I mean, how deeply Christian I was. But that's in, in the cultural terms. Mm. I think you, you, you mean, uh, you know, in, in a more kind of spiritual sense. Yes. OK, so um, a, a couple, um, I've mentioned this before, I think I may, may even have talked about it when we, we talked before, but it was, um, I went with, uh, to the church that I'd... Um, uh, gone to as, as a child and I mentioned how disgracefully that I'd been, I'd been in the choir um, and I w- went there very early and basically there was no choir there were about eight people kind of huddled in mm. what had been the choir stools and it seemed expressive of decline and, yes. and, and failure and I kind of thought this is going to be really kind of depressing um, and vicar arrived uh, and it was a woman um, who didn't look like she didn't look like I remembered a vicar. <laughs> so it didn't look like this guy who the vicar who had right. been uh, yeah. one of the few, uh, which kind of, I realised was kind of my, you know, in the abstract. And so I thought, oh, you know, what's this going to be like? It was amazing. It was the most brilliant sermon I'd ever heard. It was it was, um, it, you know, talking about Pentecostal fire. It was like fire had descended on her. There's an R.S. Thomas poem about where he, he, he describes some, you know, fire came here and everyone was kind of, everything was changed. Mm. That's what it felt like. And I, you know, it was kind of the essence of the Protestant tradition, I guess. The idea that, that a great preacher can <laughs> spark fire within, within you. And I've, I've kept what she said on that day mm. kind of very close to me and I kind of warm my hands with right. it. 
Um, and I'll give you another thing yeah. that, that, that I found emotionally and spiritually satisfying, and I apologise, this is about right. history again. Yeah, it's fine. But, but over the course of the pandemic, I've been going on increasingly, insanely long walks over <laughs> London, uh, and I've begun to do historically-themed ones. So I've, I, I did a Roman one, I've done a medieval one, I did a Tudor one, but I also did an Anglo-Saxon one. And I went, I, I walked from Brixton um, via Woolwich up to Barking. And those who have any familiarity with London geography, that's quite a long way. And Barking was the centre of a great um, abbey, great convent as well, great centre of female learning. It was where, um, it, was, it, it was the great centre of female scholarship in, mm. in, in medieval England. And of course got closed and, and destroyed in the, in the Reformation. Um, but that abbey owned uh, All Hallows by the Tower, which, as its name suggests, is by the Tower of London. So I walked from Barking to All Hallows. I think it's about 10 miles. I mean, quite a long way, not a very pleasant route. Um, but it had the quality of a pilgrimage. And I'd arranged for the vicar was going to meet me and, and open up her church to, to show me the church. Um, and she took me up for, 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 for tea, which I really needed by that point. So I was kind of, you know, very grateful for that. And then she showed me this icon that she'd done, she'd, she'd commissioned, which was of the, um, of, of the first abbess of Barking Abbey, holding um, uh, medicinal plants because she'd been a great healer and saying, you know, we, we want to reestablish contact with that memory because... Um, she was a woman who healed in a time of plague. And again, I felt the kind of the strange, the dissolution of the, of the centuries and the millennia. Uh, and, and think you know, only really the church can do this. You know, only, only an institution that old can achieve these kind of effects. So I suppose those are two, you know, the, 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 the Protestant sense of sudden fire that I got with this sermon. And then with that, the sense of this kind of deep time, where, where, where the past and the present suddenly seem coterminous. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's a kind of strangeness and a power there yeah. that I feel the great change over the past year, over the past few years, process of writing Dominion, has been to open me up to the, the strangeness of those yeah. experiences. You've um, taken, you said it, as you said on a show recently with me, you've, you've had to take the safety lock off a bit. Yes, <laughs> taking the safety lock. I was just talking about this with, with, with Thomas. Said, said it's a bit like, you know, the, the gear stick has been stuck and I've wrenched it out and now it's kind of in neutral and I'm not quite sure which way it's going to go. Well, but, but it is at least... I, I appreciate you sharing so very honestly. and it's, it's good good of you because I know I pest you every time you come on the show to, to, to sort of give us an update, Tom. Where are you at? I mean, at, at the core of this story, Tom Wright, is the claim... The, frankly, still, by people like Alice Roberts, crazy claim that somebody came back to life, that Jesus specifically. And um, I think there's a number of different questions that come in along these lines. But here's one which is puts in quite an interesting way. He just wants to know, look, if, you, if someone had stuck a video camera outside the empty tomb on Easter Day, would it have picked up the risen Jesus walking out? They're essentially asking, was it literally that physical? Was it literally like that? Yes, I mean, video cameras are funny things. And uh, I remember when, when Malcolm Muggeridge went to see Mother Teresa um, in Calcutta and interviewed her, um, they weren't allowed to put proper lights for, for the television cameras in. 
um, because the patients, it would have been bad for the patients. But in fact, when the, they, they, they shot it anyway, and when it came out, there was this kind of lovely, ethe gentle, ethereal light in which you mm. could see, and, and nobody had any explanation for it. And this has been written up. I mean, this is, um, maybe it's a modern urban legend or something. <laughs> but, but funny, so in other words, funny things happen. And saying video camera, empty tomb, yes or no, is, is I think, an over-rationalisation of it. However, empty tomb, yes. Had there been a body of, of Jesus in there before? Yes. Was there a body of Jesus in there now? No, there wasn't. Did people soon afterwards see somebody who they recognised as Jesus, not least by the mark of the nails in his hands? Yes, they did. Um, if, as many have tried to say, these stories were made up much later, they simply wouldn't look like that. We know the texts which... Jews at the time would use to talk about resurrection, like Daniel chapter 12, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, or like Ezekiel 37, the dry bones, etc. The resurrection stories in the Gospels are simply not the sort of thing that you'd get if you had that sort of expectation and then a decade or two later decided to fantasize stories about Jesus. They're very, very odd stories. My former colleague in Oxford, Ed Sanders, who was very far from being any sort of conservative Christian, he said of those stories, it looks as though the writers are trying very hard to say something they knew happened, but for which they knew they didn't have very good language. And here, you see, I would take issue with the way the question was raised in mm. terms of Jesus coming back to life, because in a sense, yes, but actually the whole emphasis of the story, see, Lazarus comes back to life in John chapter 11, Jesus raises him from the dead he comes back into ordinary mortal life and he is again vulnerable to um, attack or whatever um, the widow's son at Nain or Jairus's daughter in, in, in Mark's gospel um, uh, they come back into life and they have to live their life and one day they will die Jesus the whole emphasis of the story is, is stranger than that mm. he seems to have gone through death and out the other side into a new mode of physicality for which there was no precedent and of which there remains no subsequent example. Although, through the Spirit, the things that the church does in terms of education, medicine, healing, care for the poor, etc., and the way the church behaves in terms of, of patience, humility, chastity, charity, the, the virtues which the ancient pagan world didn't value but the Christians did, these are signs of new creation which go with... Um, resurrection. Mm. So, so we have to be careful then. What happens with the video camera? Yes, I think Jesus is certainly alive again, but he now belongs equally in heaven and on earth. And sometimes they are transparent to one another and sometimes they aren't. That's very difficult for us because we're brought up as basically split-level people. Heaven's a long way up there, we're down here. You're either in the one or the other. But as I said before, in the Jewish tradition, heaven and earth come together in the temple. And the whole point of early Christianity is that what the temple was a signpost towards has been realized in Jesus. Jesus. Mm. That demands that, you see, the danger is otherwise we come to the Jesus questions with a set of categories that we've got from somewhere else and try to squash Jesus into them. And part of the whole fun and frustration of <laughs> thinking Christianly is to put Jesus into the middle of the picture and say everything else is going to have to be rearranged around him. And that, it seems to me, is part of what is entailed by saying Jesus Christ is Lord.
I mean, I, you've sort of answered it, but Roger, and you, you can be very brief on this, is asking a similar question. How should we explain the physical mechanics of the resurrection? I mean, do we not even bother to try? Uh, uh, well, you just say God is the creator, and this is not a random bit of, of oddity, like somebody doing a stupid miracle and making a pig fly or something like that. This is, as C.S. Lewis said in his book on miracles, this is, these are miracles of new creation which are consonant with and fulfilling of the promise which mm. is latent in the old creation. That's why elsewhere I've argued that actually, and there's a wonderful line from Ludwig Wittgenstein where he says it is love that believes the resurrection. And my construal of that is that the resurrection of Jesus is God the creator giving to the creation that sense of affirmation, the created world is good and is to be restored rather than in Plato, at best shabby I, and to be left I, behind. I seem to remember one of your predecessors in Durham saying the, country, the, the, the resurrection shouldn't be seen as a conjuring trick with bones. Yes. And, and some people took that to mean, oh, he doubts the resurrection that it was physical, but I don't think that's really what um, was meant. I never had that conversation with David. I knew him a bit. Um, he was a master at saying two or three things <laughs> that sort of slid against one another and, and were designed to tease people into, sure. into fresh sure. thought, which they often did. And bless him, he was a, a lovely, warm-hearted man. Um, I think he meant, alas, that if the resurrection stories had involved a body... It would have been a conjuring trick with bones, but because God doesn't do conjuring tricks, it can't right. have been. I think that's what he meant, but I'm honestly not sure. Right. I mean, another question here from Tim, sort of, I think, sort of wants to take it one step further. In what sense is Jesus alive today? Um, and I think we're coming up to Ascension Sunday, aren't we? we, just, uh, we Ascension Day was two days ago. Two days ago. And so tomorrow, we're, we're, we're recording this on a... Well, it's going out live. But yes, it is. But this is the Saturday before the Sunday after Ascension Day. Right, OK. Ascension Day is always there on Thursday. But, so, so, <laughs> so, so, I mean, that's, yeah. you know, in Acts, that's the yeah. next part of the story. Um, what, but if, if, you know, it's, it's often a sort of Christian cliche almost, Jesus is alive. Um, in what sense is Jesus alive, asked Tim? Um, the short answer, Tim, is that he's just as alive as you are, in fact, a lot more so. Um, that the, the Jesus' aliveness is a, a heaven and earth aliveness. Jesus is present, um, usually hidden, though if he wants to make himself visible. I have one close friend who is absolutely convinced that, that he actually met Jesus physically on one occasion. Uh, it's not up to me to say God can't do that. God can do whatever God wants. Um, so... Uh, but, but the presence of Jesus is a wonderful, mysterious, sometimes almost one wants to say a delicate thing, um, beckoning, consoling, warning, etc., um, just like a wise, good friend would be. Um, and there are places where we can meet him, where he's promised to meet with his people, like in the scriptures and in the breaking of the bread, as at the end of Luke's gospel, um, but he'll meet us in other ways and places as well. Mm. And can I, how does that then relate to the promise that he will come again? He will come again because when, in the end, heaven and earth will no longer be separated by the thin veil. We were talking about thin places earlier, places where heaven and earth seem to be almost transparent to one another. And, and the coming again, it's interesting in the New Testament, sometimes it uses the language of coming as of travel. Other times it uses the language of appearing. There's two or three passages, Colossians 3, 1 John 3, and one or two others, which seem to imply that there is a sort of 
screen between us and the heavenly reality. And one day the screen will be removed and we'll discover what was there all along, like Elisha and his servant, the Lord opened his eyes and suddenly the mountain is full of horses and chariots of fire round about the prophet, you know, just when we were getting scared. Um, so then that is part of the great promise, as in Romans 8 and other passages, that creation itself, the whole creation, will be set free from its present bondage to, to decay. Um, and Jesus himself, as the Lord of creation, will be personally present in that new world. Um, quite what that'll look like, we don't have good imagery. And the book of Revelation uses this wild, fantastic imagery almost as a way of saying, don't take this literally, <laughs> but these are signposts towards something for which we don't have good language. Hmm. Um, let's have one more resurrection question. Um, this is quite an interesting one. Doesn't leave a name here, but, but asks, why did Jesus not appear to any of his enemies, or at least those who were influential in his crucifixion, after he rose from the dead? I mean, I guess if he'd appeared to Pilate, you know, maybe that would, would have sort of sealed the deal for the Christian church, arguably. Maybe but. he did and Pilate had his eyes shut. I mean... Um, <laughs> there are stories, aren't there, in, in the Ethiopian church? Are Pilate there indeed? did become a saint. Uh, well, yes, and, and, and Pilate, there, there are some places which revere Pilate, but um, that, that's, that's kind of a side issue. I guess. <laughs> I accept of that. course, the, the, the primary counterexample is Paul. Paul on the road okay, to Damascus yes, um, was, was a full-on enemy mm. and Jesus appeared to him. And people say, oh, well, that was just a vision. But actually, Paul was convinced that he had seen Jesus with his own eyes, um, you know, because that's what constitutes him an apostle. An apostle is, for Paul, somebody who has seen the risen Jesus. Um, the danger with asking why, why did God do X rather than Y, why didn't God do A rather than B, is that that implies that we know antecedently something about the mind of God into which we can then put bits and pieces of the Jesus story, whereas the New Testament, to say it again, insists that it's the other way around, that it's only as we look at Jesus. You know, John says nobody has ever seen God, but the only begotten Son has revealed him, has made him known. That's the way around it has to be, which is why looking at and praying to and invoking and enjoying the presence of Jesus has to be at the centre of all the reflection on everything else. Well, we're going to call time on today's show just there. And next week, we'll play out the rest of the questions that came in in a part two of this live Ask N.T. Write Anything show that we recorded at Unbelievable 2021. You can find out more about our show, find further videos and how to ask a question yourself and other resources by registering over at AskNTWrite.com. And again, get all of the sessions in high definition video from the conference page at Unbelievable. Dot live. See you next time. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.